to go. Thank you for coming. Uh, tonight's class was dedicated by, by the Bestamskis, by um, Shia and Ariella Bestamsky. This is in honor of Ariella's mother, whose yard site is tonight, Hanafega Bas Moshe. Allah Shalom. May your Neshama have a very great Aliyah to the greatest of heights. And may she channel lots and lots of brachas to you, Ariella, to your children, grandchildren, to the entire family. For only, only good things, mazal and bracha, bezos Hashem, very soon. We should all be reunited down here with the coming of Moshiach. Thanks for that dedication. We also have a, a dedication on the CD tonight, on this week's CD. Um, this is an honor, this was dedicated by Mayor David Poor. And this is in honor of his father's yard site, which is going to take place on the 16th of Tishrei, which is the second day of Sukkot. Rachmim ben Mordechai. Um, his neshama have a very great aliyah. To the greatest of heights, may Hashem bench you, Mayor, with only, only a brachas, revealed good. May your father um, uh, bestow and channel from the highest uh, brachas for you, for your family, for only good health, parnasah barachava, and very, 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 very good things. Okay, Sukkot is coming, and Sukkot is an extremely special time, joyful holiday, full of, full of energy, full of life. It's very, very, very special. And we know that Sukkot is celebrated uh, primarily with two mitzvahs. We have the mitzvah of sitting in a sukkah, eating in a sukkah, or living in a sukkah uh, for seven days. And in addition to that, we also have the mitzvah of the four species, of taking the various four different types of vegetation, four different types of fruits, branches, um, and we take these together and uh, we wave them. Actually, just taking them is the mitzvah. The waving of them adds, of course, more, more to the power of what is being done, but just picking them up during the daytime of Sukkot, excluding Shabbos, is the mitzvah. Now, um, the interesting thing is that when it comes to the shaking of the lulav, the mitzvah of taking the four species, the Torah says, you should take for yourselves biyom harishon on the first day. Now simply it means on the first day of the holiday. Since there is a seven-day Yom Tov, the holiday is for seven days, and then there is an another Chag that gets attached to the end called Shmini Yatzeres, which in many ways is its own holiday. So it's a seven-day Yom Tov. So the Torah is saying that the main requirement is only on the first day uh, of, of, of Sukkot. And then we know that which really continued the rest of the time, but the main requirement is on the first day. Biyom Arishon, the mitzvah of taking, of taking the species. The question, however, is, the Medrash asks the question, is this really the first day? This is the 15th day. Why does the Torah refer to this mitzvah when it's really the, it's not the first day, it's the 15th day? Now the Medrash answers what the Medrash answers. That the, that, the, that, the, that the Torah is trying to teach you that this is the first day when God is taking account of the sins that we do. Because on Yom Kippur, he wiped the slate clean. We're all clean, we're all pure. And then between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're busy, God's busy. We're all busy with the sukkah, Hashem is also busy. Uh, the fact that we're busy, he doesn't, sins are not counted. Not that we're a lot of chas and God and sin, but it's, it's in a sense, there's no calculation on sins, there's no accounting because 
we're all so busy with Yom Tif that there's no, it's not possible to sin, really. So the real cheshben is the first day, is the first day of Yom Tif. That's the answer of the Medrash. But I'd like to um, dwell on the question. The, the Medrash asks, is this the first day? It's the 15th day. But, but what kind of question is that? It really is the first day. It's, not the, it's the 15th day of the month, but it's the first day of Sukkot. So what's wrong with calling this day the first day? We all understand that it means the first day of Sukkot. But as the Mepharshim explained, the question of the Medrash is, there are many mitzvahs, other mitzvahs that are done on Sukkot, in which the Torah re- doesn't refer to it as the first day. There's the mitzvah of sitting in a Sukkot. There's the mitzvah of, of uh, celebrating Chagiga. There's the mitzvah of the Yom Tif itself, that this is a day that you're not allowed to do any work. Work is forbidden. And yet, in all those places, the Torah does not refer to the day as the first day. It refers to it as the 15th day of the month. It's only in regards to Sukkah that the Torah refers to it as the first day. So that itself tells you that there is, not, I'm sorry, not in regards to the Sukkah. In regards to the Dalad Minim, in regards to the Lulav, the Esrog, the Hadas, and the Arava, which translated in English, the Lulav is the, uh, the, 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 the branch, the, the palm branch. Um, the esrog is the citrus fruit and then the uh, hadasim are the myrtle branches that have a good scent and the aravis are the willow branches so it's only in regards to this mitzvah that the Torah refers to um, the first day of Sukkot as the first day not as the 15th day so without even getting into the answer of the medrash that I mentioned earlier this already tells you that there is something very special about the Dalad Minim, about the mitzvah of taking these four species, in that there is something new that is beginning. Let's, for, let's regress for a moment. When we say that something is taking place on the 15th day of the month, it is implying that we are connecting this particular act to this being the 15th day of the month. Now, when you're saying it's the 15th day of the month, you're saying that whatever you're commemorating is already in the midst of it happening. There's nothing new happening right now. Because what's the 15th day of the month? 15th day is very significant. The 15th day of the month represents that the moon is in its full moon. Now, when you're seeing the full moon in the middle of the month, it's not really new. The new moon is in the beginning of the month. It just kept on getting larger and larger and larger and larger until the 15th is the full moon. So just like it is physically, we understand that so it is spiritually. Every new energy, every new power that begins at the beginning of a month increases. Every month has its unique, unique spiritual glow, has its unique spiritual power, its unique character. And that power increases. When does it reach its full zenith, its full power? In the middle of the month. If we're saying a mitzvah is to be done on the 15th of the month, it means that whatever that mitzvah is, the energy of that particular spiritual life force that we're tapping into in this mitzvah is already present earlier. It's only now is when it's in its fullest and its most powerful, potent state. That's when you should do the mitzvah. But it's not something that's happening new today. And you see that in regards to all the other aspects of sukkahs, the Torah is connecting sukkahs to the 15th day of a month, implying that Sukkot is really not a novelty. Nothing really new. Whatever is there in Sukkot happens already on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year. It's just that Sukkot brings it out in a very powerful revealed way. And we know that this is consistent with something that the Hasidic masters tell us, that Sukkot is really just the unraveling or the, or the opening up 
of the deep connection that we've achieved with God on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we've achieved with Hashem a very, very, very powerful, deep bond. And on Sukkot, but it's hidden. It's something that's concealed. And you can see it from the fact that on Rosh Hashanah, the moon is concealed. The moon represents the Jewish people. And the Jewish people's connection to God, because the sun shines on the moon, the sun is reflecting Hashem. So that, there is a connection. It's on Rosh Hashanah, the moon is born. So there is a deep, there is, a, there, there is something essentially that's taking place, but it's not open for the eye to see. It's still concealed. When Sukkot comes, it is very, very clear that there, is a, that there is love taking place over here. The moon is fully aglow with the light of the sun. So the mitzvahs of Sukkot are a derivative of the essential core bond and connection that we've re reenacted or rather rediscovered, so to speak, on Rosh Hashanah. And now it's just getting stronger and stronger and, and, and coming to a revealed state. As in the words of the Pasuk, it says, Bakese, that which is concealed in Rosh Hashanah. Kese means concealed. Liyom Chagenu, on Sukkot, it becomes day. Liyom means day. Chagenu, on the Chag, Sukkot is called Chag. And so on Sukkot, what is bakesa, what is concealed, liyoyim is becoming revealed. And we spoke about this many times, that the sukkah is actually a direct manifestation of Yom Kippur and Sukkot, Yom Kippur and, and, and Rosh Hashanah, in the fact that on Yom Kippur we, blew a, we blow a hundred sounds from the shofar, and on the sukkah we have the schach. The schach are the branches or whatever, the bamboo mats, or whatever it is that you're using those to cover the ceiling, the roof of the sukkah. So the schach... Is, is gematria, its numeric value is 100. Samach chav chav equals 100. So it's coming from the 100 sounds. We produce it on Rosh Hashanah with the 100 sounds. And even more, as we once discussed, it's very accurate. On Rosh Hashanah, from the 100 sounds, there are 60 tekios, 20 shivarim, and 20 teruos. That's the way the amount that you have. And that's the actual composition of the word schach. Samach chav chav. So it's not just 100. It's a hundred to the very detail. We also know that the sukkah represents the clouds of glory. How do we get those clouds of glory every year, which represent the divine presence hovering over us? Where do we get that? From the smoking cloud that the Kohen Gadol produced, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. So we see that sukkah is a direct derivative. It's a direct derivative and a revelation of what really essentially happened on Rosh Hashanah. So there's nothing really new in sukkah. Besides what? Besides the Dalad Minim. Because the Dalad Minim, the four species, that's something new. And that's the reason why in regards to this mitzvah, the Torah refers to as Biyom Rishon. This is something that we don't have in Rosh Hashanah. It's a novel idea. It's something new. This is, this is occurring now on Sukkot that we don't have earlier. The Sukkot itself is something that we have already on Rosh Hashanah. It's just concealed. It reveals itself to us on Sukkot. But the Dalad Minim, the four species of fruits that we take, that's the novelty of Sukkot, and that's why the Torah refers to it as Biyom Rishon. That would be an explanation, but that would still need an understand why. What is so unique about the four species that this is the newness of Sukkot? The other thing we need to understand is that the sages in Medrash connect the mitzvah of the four Minim also to Rosh Hashanah, which will cause a problem. Because the sages say, one of the reasons we take the Dalad Minim is because when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, there is kind of a... A, there is a, the Jewish people go to, the whole world goes to trial. 
We're standing in front of God. And in a sense, to whatever degree we can say, there's always the tension between Israel and the world, the Jew and the Gentile, and so on and so forth. Especially since we know we're praying for redemption. We don't want to be anymore amongst the exiles, amongst the nations. As nice as uh, the, the, our host nation has been to us, we, our time has come for us to go back home. And there is this, there's this tension. Will the Jewish people go out of exile that year? And as we know Kabbalistically, the nations of the world don't want the Jewish people to rebuild Yerushalayim on some level, subconscious, not conscious. But on some subconscious, some people consciously too, but on some subconscious level. Because as long as Israel is in exile, it adds energy to, the, to, the, to, to those Gentile nations. Because when where the Jewish people are, the Shekhinah is. And the Shekhinah is a source of life to the world. So when Jew is embedded in the Gentile environment, it adds blessings to the Gentile. What they really don't know is the ultimate blessing is going to come when, Jews, when the Jews return to Israel. There's going to be such a flow of energy to the world that even though it's not going directly to the Gentile nations, just the overspill is going to be so much more than what they're receiving now. But that's just a, a parenthetical idea. So really they should want very much we should return to the land of Israel. But the idea over here the Medrash is implying is that there is some kind of a trial and the two sides are the 70 nations and the Jewish people. But we don't know who's victorious. We don't know who won in this, in this trial in, in, in court. So when Rosh Hashanah comes, when, Yom, when, when finally when Sukkot comes and the Jewish people are, are coming out from the shuls, and they're all carrying their lulavim, they, the Medrash says it looks like an army coming back victoriously from war. It's like we're holding our swords high up. And that's the lulav. So you see clearly that the Medrash is saying that what? That the lulav is also a continuation of what? Of Rosh Hashanah. We've been in trial Rosh Hashanah. The lulav is coming to display what happened behind the secret doors of the, of the closed doors of the judge. The verdict is now announced openly. It's given over to the media. It's like, you know, when, when, when they reached a conclusion, there's always the suspense. What happened? The jury is coming out, but we don't know what they decided. Everybody's waiting to hear what is going to be. So on Sukkot is when we get to hear what is it that we hear that, that it's good for Israel, it's good for the Jewish people. So you see clearly that even the mitzvah of the four species, which is the lulav, is a continuation to Rosh Hashanah. So now we're really in a dilemma. We said before that the reason why the Torah ex- explicitly calls the mit- relates to the mitzvah of the four species that it has to be Biyom Rishon on the first day. And only by this mitzvah is that Biyom Rishon is because Lulav is a new thing. It's not a continuation to what was before. But on the other hand, from this other medrash, it seems to imply that Lulav is a continuation to what happened on Rosh Hashanah. So is it or, it is, or is it not? So we have to say an amazing thing. So we have to think a little deeper. We have to say like this. Lulav is a furthering the sukkah. Lulav is a continuation of Rosh Hashanah. Whatever happens in month of Tishrei, which is a powerful renewal of the bond between God and Israel in a very deep way, only gets continues to grow as we go from Rosh Hashanah through the 10 days of repentance and we get to Yom Kippur and it gets more and more potent and powerful and it reaches Sukkot and it expresses itself in the Sukkot and it continues to express itself as a continuation in what? In the four species. Yet, the four species that we're taking has something to it that's bringing something completely novel to 
to this godliness that really began on Rosh Hashanah. So it's new, but it's, it's, it's new in that which really was before. So we're combining. Meaning to say, it's not like, a, 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 like, 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 like Pesach. It's a matzah. It's a whole different story. We're dealing with the same energy of Tishrei. But this takes it to such a new level that it could, it could be considered as if, it's, as if today is the first day of it. So which we can say is like this. The Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Sukkot experience, and when I'm saying Sukkot, I mean the Sukkah part of Sukkot, not the Lulav, is one progression where you can see one thing evolving into the next. The Lulav is already a whole a leap, a quantum leap. It's a whole new idea. But it's a new idea that is furthering that which has been accomplished Rosh Hashanah and developing on Yom Kippur. It's just taking it to such a high and so, so much deeper that it's considered as if this is the first day that this is occurring. So we need to understand what is it. that it, it, It's both old and new at the same time. So to understand this, we need to gain um, a, uh, a better understanding of what we said earlier, that the sukkah is really a continuation of Rosh Hashanah and the realization of Rosh Hashanah. There's also one more idea that we can relate to this, an interesting idea. The question is, is how much is the sukkah and the lulav connected? Are the four species and the, and the sukkah, do they have any intrinsic bond or are they just two separate mitzvahs that happen to be done on the same festival? Or are they related? We could technically say they're not related. There's two mitzvahs. There's one is to sit in a sukkah. The other one is to take the four species. They're not... They're, they're not but we know it's brought down in, in, uh, in places, in Allah, and that it is, it is uh, the, uh, the Siddur of Shneir Zalman of Liyadi and Hasidim all have this minhag. It's all across the Hasidic world and many others also. Those who follow a more Kabbalistic tradition have the minhag and the custom that they shake the lulav, do the mitzvah of shaking the lulav in the sukkah. You can technically shake the lulav anywhere. You can do it on the street, you can do it in the house. But it's a custom to go shake the lulav in the sukkah. Now, what's the reason for that? So you see that they're connected. If you have to shake the lulav in the sukkah, it's a sign that they're connected. Now, technically, one can argue and say that it's not, it's not because lulav essentially has a relationship to sukkah. It's because of the mitzvah of sukkah. The mitzvah of sukkah is an all-encompassing mitzvah. It's an all-embracing mitzvah. The meaning of sukkah is that you're living. This is your home. Sukkah is your home during seven days. The sages say, teishu ke'in taduru. You're supposed to live in the sukkah as if the sukkah was your home. For seven days, this is your home. Your house is just a support background for your sukkah. The ma- a supply house, kind of. Your main dwelling and your living space on sukkahs is your sukkah. That's how we're supposed to feel. And that's why every free moment or every time that we don't have something that we must do at home, inside our house, we should be spending in the sukkah. For company, conversations, anything that we could do in the sukkah, we should do in the sukkah. So then, here's the thing. When you're doing a mitzvah, like shaking the lulav, where would a person usually do a mitzvah? If you have a, unless you're doing it publicly in shul, but if you're not doing it in a shul, where does a person do when he has a precious something to do? He does it in his home, together with his family, he does it in his house. Now, if your home during sukkah is what? Is your sukkah. So it only makes sense that the sukkah should demand that the mitzvah of shaking the lulav that you would be doing in your house it should be done in the sukkah because the sukkah is your residence. If it wouldn't, if the mitzvah of sukkah would, if the mitzvah of lulav would would be a mitzvah that we would do in Hanukkah, where would you do it? You do it in your house. 
So now that it's sukkah, where's your home? Your home is the sukkah. So therefore you should shake the lulav in the sukkah. Then there's no, there's the con, that, what would that mean? That the content of, 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 of lulav is not related to the content of sukkah. It's just that sukkah, because it's, because it's so all-encompassing and all-embracing, it, it kind of demands that if you're doing anything, do it in the sukkah. So in, if you're doing a mitzvah, which is important, do it in the sukkah. But from, from, from the, what is written about it, it seems to imply that it's not something related to the sukkah, but it's a hidra mitzvah in the, in the lulav. It's something about the lulav, with the lulav. In other words, in order for the lulav to be in its full potency, in order for you to squeeze out all the juice of this mitzvah, and to get the full power of the mitzvah, you should do your lulav, shake your lulav in the sukkah, not because sukkah demands it, but because lulav demands it. What would be the difference if it's sukkah demanding it or lulav demanding it? What would be the difference? Technically, halachically, very simple. What happens if you wake up early in the morning and you want to do the mitzvah right away because you're supposed to do a mitzvah right away, but it's raining cats and dogs outside? Pouring. Now the halacha is that when it's raining, you're exempt from sukkah. So now your question is, should, should, and but you know that it could be that you listen to the weather report and it says that by 12 o'clock in the afternoon, by 12 noon, it's going to be a beautiful sunny day. Again, that's what you hear. So now your question is, should you delay your shaking of your lulav and wait till 12 o'clock? So that you can shake the lulav in the sukkah? Or should you do the mitzvah of shaking lulav immediately? What is it dependent on? Dependent on it's dependent on why should we rather preferably shake a lulav in the sukkah? If the reason I need to shake the lulav in the sukkah is because the sukkah is beckoning me to shake the lulav in the sukkah, it's a sukkah thing. Because sukkah says, everything you would do in your house, do inside my parameters. Well, if it's the time that sukkah is not operating, if it's raining and sukkah is canceled, then you have no obligation then to do your lulav in the sukkah. And since, what? you rather do a mitzvah earlier in the day than delay it. So rather do your, shake your lulav in your house. Immediately. So you can get the benefit of doing a mitzvah speedily and doing them immediately. However, if a lulav is more mahudr, if the mitzvah of lulav is more beautiful, more powerful, has greater spiritual light, more content, more meaning, when the lulav is shaken in the sukkah and it, it enhances the lulav, then maybe you should wait. Since you know that in an hour or so it will stop raining, and I'll be able to do my lulav in the sukkah, so the lulav is telling me, don't shake me yet. Wait until you'll be able to do me and shake me in the sukkah, so that I will have the advantage of sukkah. You see the difference? So from, it, from, from, from the, the way it is written, it implies that it's a hider, it's an actually, a, it's an actually a, a beautifying of the lulav itself, it should be done in the sukkah. That is again, now whatever the explanation is, we're going to get to, we're going 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 to speak about later. But let's first understand that, that itself is telling you that the essential mitzvah of the Dalad Minim is intrinsically bond up with the sukkah. There's, the soul of these two mitzvahs are connected. It's not just that both of them are done in the same period of the year, in the same holiday, but these two mitzvot are linked together. They're attached to it. And the lulav somehow derives its energy from the sukkah. So now let's understand that. So here's an idea which everybody, of course, is familiar with. 
And that is that Sukkot, what's one of the unique things about Sukkot is that Sukkot expresses in a very unique way Jewish unity. The idea of Bechlal, the month of Tishrei, is a month when we get very close to God. Closer than any other time of the year. It's a month of tshuva, it's a month of repentance, the month of the deepest love. And even more than Pesach. Pesach, we're like tzaddikim. And tzaddikim, our righteous people, are, are, are Hashem loves them very much. But as much as God loves the righteous, Hashem loves the penitent much more. Because the penitent reaches levels of closeness to God that the righteous can never leave, can never reach the balchuva. But makim shabalchuva omdem ain tzaddikim gemurim yacharim lam. It's like impossible. The levels of the balchuva. So on Tishrei, we reach the highest, deepest connection to God. And automatically, it's in- inevitably, the closer we get to God, the more unified we feel to each other. Because we're getting closer to the source of our unity. The source of our unity is our divine source. So the closer we're... St- how to- if a person wants to measure how close am I to God, the best parameter to measure that is how much do I love my neighbor? How much do I love another Jew? How excited do I get to see another person? Closeness to God does not lead a person to seclusion to run away from the world. That's not real. That's imaginary closeness. Real closeness will call you to grab another Jew and say, how can I help you? How, what can I do for you? Closeness to Hashem brings, highlights, reveals our interest. That's why we see sukkahs is such a... Even without the mitzvahs of sukkahs, just the, the energy of sukkahs is one of such unity. There is dancing, there is singing, we get together, we meet, we dance, we grab each other, we're all unified, we're all close, we're, we feel very connected. In particularly, this unity expresses itself in these two mitzvahs, the mitzvah of sukkah and the mitzvah of lula. But the unity expressed in both of them is quite different. The unity that we express in a sukkah is one that is all-encompassing and all-embracing and, and really, in a sense, uniform. What happens in a sukkah is, the sages tell us an interesting thing. The sages tell us that since it says in besukos in teshvu that you should sit in a sukkah, and one of the times when the Torah says besukos, it mentions the sukkah without... It says, Kol ha'ezrach bi Yisrael. All the... All the... All the, all the um, ezrach means all the... Um, the, uh, the citizens, all the citizens of Israel, or the natives, call it Ezra, the better word is natives. All the natives of Israel, Yeshvu Basuko, Sukkos, should sit in a Sukkah. It says Basukos, in Sukkos, meaning. But the sages point out an interesting thing. If you look at the word Sukkos, it's missing a vav. So it's as if it would say, Kola Ezra, be Yisrael, Yeshu Basukas. Now Sukkos means one Sukkah. Sukkos means many Sukkahs. So the Torah is implying that what? That what God would really, really, really want, the preferable, preferable, preferable state, is that all Jewish people to sit in one sukkah. So when they used to have these apartment buildings and they, then they couldn't make, you know, people couldn't make their own sukkahs and they had in the middle, they made this one sukkah and everybody would come in and eat, different families would come in and eat different times. One sometimes feels that it's some kind of a compromise kind of in Simchas Yom Tif, you know, like you're not sitting, you have other people there, this one left a little mess, and so on and so forth, and they're doing their thing, and they smell their other food, and like, it's not, it just doesn't have, so one thinks it's a compromise. In a sense, it might be a compromise, maybe a little bit in, in, that, in that idea of your own Simchas Yom Tif, but on the other hand, it's an enhancement in the mitzvah of sukkah. The more Jews in one sukkah, the better it is. And ultimately, if we can have all, if we can create the ginormous sukkah, and have all the Jewish people on one sukkah, that would be the best. And that's the way it's going to be when Mashiach comes, when we're going to sit under the sukkah of the Leviyasim. That says the skins of the Leviyasim. All the Jewish people will be on the one sukkah. So that's the ultimate, ultimate sukkah. And we fulfill the mitzvah. All learned out from this halacha. But now there is something deeper what the sages are saying. 
that what the sages are really saying is that the idea of sukkah is unification. The idea of the sukkah is that you have one room, one holiness, one godly light, that when we come into that place, suddenly there is all the differences that there are between people. All the levels that there are, people are so different, especially when it comes to observance and religiosity, on levels of, of, of righteousness and the like. There's no two people the same. And you have the tzaddikim, you have what's the righteous, you have the bainanim, the intermediate, and you have the rishayim, you have the wicked. In each category, you have a gazillion different levels of them. And yet, everybody sits in one sukkah. It's similar to the way the sukkah unifies the entire body. We know that um, in, in regards to sukkah, there is an expression, a Hasidic expression, that in a sukkah, the entire person enters into the sukkah, your head and your muddy boots enter, enter the sukkah. It's the only mitzvah, really. You know, almost, mikvah is also that way to a certain degree. But mitzvah is not so complete, because mikvah, you're going there and you don't bring your muddy boots. You're going just with your body. But in, in a sukkah, you're going in with your garments, with your table, with your food. Everything is un- and everything is equally. Your heart isn't any more enveloped in the sukkah than your toenail. It's equally. The sukkah is the, is the surrounding environment that's enveloping the entire person. So you can't distinguish between the head, the feet, the hands, the arm, the heart, and, and the most external outer part of the human being are equally fulfilling, equally embraced by this holiness of the sukkah. So just like it is an individual person, same as also in all the Jewish people. So when you have a sukkah and lots of people come into the sukkah, so the big rabbi or the big, big scholar or the very, very big tzaddik, and a most ignorant Jew who knows nothing, who you happen to have just met on the street, you needed someone to do something for you on Yontif, and you thought the person was a Gentile, turned out when you started asking questions just to make sure that they're, they're not Jewish, turns out they're Jewish, and then they never, right? And they didn't even know until this moment they're Jewish. You explain to them that their mother is Jewish, and therefore you pull them in for a minute, say, come here, let's have a cookie in the sukkah, a piece of cake in the sukkah. And they come in and you make a blessing with the sukkah. They are just as enveloped in the holiness and the godliness of the sukkah as a person who's been thinking about sukkahs for the last three months, learning all the deep mystical uh, teachings of the Arizal and all the kavanot in a sukkah. There isn't any difference in terms... One appreciates it more, but the godliness of them is equal on the highest and the lowest. A sukkah envelops, it it encases, it embraces all of us, and when we're in the sukkah, all of our differences fall away. So that's a sukkah. Then we have the four, the four species. The four species also emphasizes unity. Because the sages tell us what does the four species of the Dalit the medium represent. The esrug represents, esrug is a citrus fruit and it has a delicious aroma and it also has pretty good taste. I, I guess most people, it's pretty kind of bitter, but you know, someone brought me some esrug li- liquor and it's really, really good. So I guess it does have a good taste, you just have to, you know, I don't know how to garnish it. So the esrug is a good taste, it's got a good scent, delicious scent. So it represents people that are, as we know, people that have the taste represents knowledge. Knowledge is tasty. And it also has a good aroma representing mitzvah observance, which creates this aura of holiness. It's something that's like on the out, like a good scent. It's, it's a delicious aroma. A mitzvah gives a good scent to a person, a very high spiritual uh, scent. Okay. So that's, that's the asterisk. The lulav is from a date. It's a palm tree, but it comes from a date tree. Dates have good taste, sweet taste. They don't have any scent. So it represents people that are Torah observant. I'm sorry, that are scholarly. They immerse themselves in Torah study, but they're not so meticulous necessarily and perfect. They're not into, they're not action-oriented Jews. They're more involved in study and learning. 
And then there are, and the Hadassim is the opposite. The, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Hadassim represents the activist Jew who's doing a lot of mitzvahs all the time. Wherever there's a mitzvah happening in town, this person is involved with it. So he's got such a good scent from him. But he's ignorant, doesn't have time to learn study, doesn't invest himself in Torah knowledge. So he's like the myrtle branch that has a good scent and doesn't have. And then the Aravis are neither. They don't taste good and they don't have a good scent. So the Aravis represents the very simple Jew who who's not a, doesn't do mitzvahs, but he's Jewish. He or she is Jewish. Now what do we do on Sukkot? We take all the four species and we bring them together. So what is the idea behind it? On Sukkot, all these four categories of Jews stand in unison. We create one mitzvah of all of them. There isn't this superiority, there isn't this sense of I'm better than you. All people come together and we all recognize that we need all Jews together in order to be a Jewish people. So Lulav and the four species also emphasize Jewish unity. But here there's a very interesting idea. There's a great difference between the Jewish unity expressed in the Sukkah and the Jewish unity expressed in the four species. In the sukkah, the unity is a unity of uniform. We all, meaning what we're really seeing over here is, we're all with this, we're not looking at who you are. It doesn't make a difference who you are. Where what we're seeing right now in the sukkah, what, what is being revealed in the sukkah is the fact that you're a Jew. And what I am noticing when you're walking into the sukkah is all your outer colorings, all your outer um, external expressions of, of your, your external identity, of what your belief system is, what you think, what your emotional state is, and all these things are all unnecessary. What affiliation you have, it's all unnecessary. It's all irrelevant. The one thing that's important is that you, within you resides a spark of God from above. You're a Jew, and if you're a Jew, you belong in the sukkah. And the sukkah is touching your essence. The godliness of the sukkah is something so deep and so high, no one comprehends it, no one knows it. It's actually connecting into the deep, it's shining. Imagine the sukkah. If we can look at let's give it a little bit of a, vision, a, 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 a visual. Walk into the sukkah, and the schach of the sukkah is this incredible divine light, and, and that schach is like a beam of light that is penetrating through all the layers of the person, and it's connecting, it's energizing to the very, very inner soul of every person. So if you can see it with your eyes, you would see this like bright light that's just like a, ray, like a laser beam going right through, parting the external particle partitions and really touching the very Jewishness of the Jew connecting him to the, to the great love of God that's embracing in the sukkah that's higher than all of our comprehension and higher than all of understanding so I'm dismissing the differences I'm, I'm not noticing, I'm pushing away, it doesn't make a difference you're a scholar, I don't care that you're a scholar you're a very big righteous, I don't care about that what I'm, what's important to me is that you have an ashama that you're in essence a Jew and that I find even in this guy who came right off the street right now and knows absolutely nothing about being Jewish but he is Jewish, he's born to a Jewish mother he possesses that Jewish soul he has this essential point this nucleus of neshama and he's connecting to the sukkah equal to everyone else so that's what I'm noticing in the sukkah despite the differences I'm noticing the essential core oneness that's at the core that's the unity of sukkah the unity of the Dalad Minim is very different in the, in the Dalad Minim we begin to we notice how different every single person is we notice that this is the, you have. We notice that you have a good aroma. You have the spiritual scent of mitzvahs. We notice that you have taste. The person opens up their mouth, and everybody just standing and licking and 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 and, and, and drinking from their mouth because they're saying such pearls of wisdom, and everybody wants to hear what this person has to say. So you have knowledge, you have scent, and then you have a person. You don't really necessarily want him to talk in the sukkah because you really realize he has nothing to say, nothing to really share. There's nothing there. There's no mitzvah to share. There's no and there's no. So, oh, but I'm noticing, I'm recognizing you're you, yet I understand that we're all together. We're all in this together, right? So 
the, 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 while the sukkah dismisses the differences or goes beyond all the differences, the lulav can join us all together, the lulav, the midst of those four species, can join us all together while recognizing that there are differences between people, different qualities, and yet bringing it together. Or let's go a little deeper than that. It's not we're tolerating the differences. One of the ways to say it, okay, in the sukkah, I'm closing my eyes. I'm not looking at you. Don't give me your, I'm not looking. I don't care what your, what your philosophies are. I don't care. I know that behind, you might even be an atheist. You might be arguing, you might not even believe in God. But I know that behind all of that is a Jewish neshama, is a real Jewish soul, and you're just as Jewish as I am. So then I'm dismissing that. In, in, in the, in the, in the, um, in the Lulav, in the Arba Minim, I'm giving you a voice. I let you proclaim that you're an atheist. I'm letting you say your observance, your not observance, you're what you're feeling. I'm letting everybody do their thing. Yet, I'm taking everybody together as they are and unifying them. So, but that means I'm tolerating. That's not what it is. It goes deeper than that. It's not that I'm tolerating. I'm realizing that we're all complement each other. In order for us to be a full, complete people, and for us, the Jewish people, to be able to realize our unique contribution that we need to make to this world and making this world into a godly place, making the entire world sensitive and receptive and the world hospitable to Hashem, it requires all different types of Jews. And one person, and, 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 and every person makes a unique contribution and I need you because you're different, not despite your difference. Because you're different. Because you might not have the knowledge I have, but you have certain depth of devotion that I don't have. Maybe you have a certain goodness and a certain kindness and a certain effect on other people in certain circles and certain that, 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 that I can never have. Because of who you are and what you are, people will listen to you and they won't listen to a rabbi like me. I'm coming in with a long beard and the people run away from me. But when you're talking, people want to hear because you, you seem to be so much part of society. And even if you're not religious or observant, there is that essential Jewishness that deep inner compassion and love of life and so forth that is being transmitted subconsciously even to other people because of you because, and I couldn't do it. Understand? So we realize we're dependent on each other. It's almost like looking at the body. When we look at the, at the human body, we can see the body, the body has two forms of unity. There's, a human body is made up of 248 limbs, right? The sages tell us 248 limbs. Now, there's two ways of seeing the unity in the body. One way of seeing it is, I'm, 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 I, 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 let, let's look past the idea that you're a head and this is a liver, right? And this is, and this is, uh, this is, the, this is the, 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 the ankle or the heel. It, the fact is that a human being is, is the, the human being is the entire human being, from head to toe. From, from scalp all the way down to the heel. Everything is part of the human. So I'm not looking at anything. I know that you're part of the human body. That's what's important to me. Then, and, and, and in the entire body is the DNA of the human. Even on the smallest little, if I scrape a little bit of skin off, the heel at the bottom of your feet, I'm going to get the same DNA across the entire body. Because it's a fact that this is, this is, this is, this is the, the body. But then there's another unity where I recognize, no, 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 let me analyze. This is, this is the brain. And the brain, obviously, I recognize the, I recognize the quality of the brain. Wow, without the brain, nothing can, the body is worthless. I mean, the brain. But then I realized that the body is pretty, pretty, pretty handicapped without the legs. Because even though the brain, what, how much will the brain be able to accomplish if it doesn't have feet to be able to take it to the places where it needs to go in order for it, the brain, to be able to do what it needs to do. 
So then each limb recognizes its dependency and not only tolerates the other, but recognizes the importance of the cohesive whole where everybody contributes what they need to contribute. And that is the unity of the four, the four species. I want you in my, in, in my mitzvah because you are a myrtle. Because you're the myrtle, I want you in my I want you in, my, in our group. We need an esrog. We need hadasim. We need the willow. We can't go, we can't do the mitzvah without the willow. We need, and everybody's going to contribute what they contribute best. The simplicity of the willow, the humility that the willow has, no, the, other, the other species don't have it. We need the humble Jew who has no idea, like doesn't know what to do with himself. Why is he in shul? He feels stupid being there because he feels he has nothing to contribute. Well, that's why we need you because you have humility that other people don't. Everybody's walking around with some kind of a pride of importance. But you, in you resides God because of your humility. You see, so everybody has something very, very unique and very special because of our differences. So that's the lulav. Now the question is, which unity is a deeper unity? Which unity is a stronger unity? Well, there are two different types of unity, and each one of them is unique, and each one of them is special, and each one has a quality. In terms of powerful unity, the unity that has to do with the fact that we all have a Jewish neshama, and our Jewish soul is an essentially one with God, and over there in that pintalayid, the point of God, I can't differentiate between Moshe Rabbeinu and the simplest of Jews living today, the most totally disconnected and, and assimilated Jew, but if he's still halachically Jewish, he possesses the spark of God, the indivisible spark that cannot be differentiated between the greatest Jew and the simplest Jew. There we're all mamish, 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 one. We're all literally one. We're, we're one entity. There's no difference at all between one and the other. So the unity is stronger. The oneness is stronger. The, off, the, the downside of that is, I can't love you for who you are. I have to love you by stripping away who you are to find your essence. I have to remove all the, the shape and form, your, 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 your personality, your character of what you are. I have to look away. I can't love you in the here and in the now. I have to love you because of who you are when before you came, before your soul came down in heaven. That, that very, very deep spark of God. I have to cl- in other words, I have to close my eyes to love you. I have to close my eyes and imagine you as you are in God's brain. At that place where we're all one. And then I feel that you and me are one because at that point of emanating from God's brain, we're all one. But that, so, so on the one hand, the unity is absolute. But on the other hand, the, the unity doesn't express itself in the, in the details. But then there's a different kind of a unity. The other unity of the Dalad Minim has an advantage. I don't have to close my eyes. I don't love you because I can see past your... Your, 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 your external self. I love you because of who you are and, who, and what you are. But on the other hand, you're still the foot. I'm the hand. I'm the nose. I'm the, I'm the chin. I'm this part of the body, that part of the body. Everybody's a different part of the body. Fine, that's the love. So, that, so then we're connected, but we're not absolutely connected because we still have different features and different entities and different, different, different. So the unity is not so strong. Now the question is, is there any way that we can unify and bridge these two unities? Meaning to make that the unity of the essence should express itself in the unity of the details and without compromising the intensity of the unity. The unity of the essence is very intense. The unity of the, of the, of the interdependency, as we spoke earlier, 
is more, is more inclusive. It includes everything. But it's not as intense. Is there a way that the two of them can, can merge? And the unity of essence should be able to be felt even when I see you for who you are and what you are. I won't lose the sense of oneness. Like the unity which comes from the unity of knowing that you're just a pure soul, a piece of God from above, and in that sense, you're totally me. So let's for a moment, remember we said earlier that Sukkis is a derivative of Rosh Hashanah and that Sukkis only reveals that which Rosh Hashanah had in essence. Sukkis reveals. The mitzvah of Sukkah reveals it. In a, in a, in a, so, so we see that in this idea we see it. Because in Rosh Hashanah, see there are certain, certain aspects of our connecting to God where every single Jew does it in a different way. If I was to come and to, 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 the, to, the, to the, I don't know, 15 million Jews and say to every single person, you know what? Can you write a little poem or just a letter to God and write how you feel towards your Creator? Express your feelings, your thoughts, your ideas. And we would collect these letters. There would be some of them that are quite similar. But I want your original ideas, right? And we're going to get 15 million different letters. Each one is going to be unique. Each one's going to be highlighting different aspects of appreciation, of connection, of attachment. Because everybody has a different feeling towards Hashem. Everybody connects differently. Through their unique mind and through their unique emotions, through the way their, and their, and their, and their childhood and the way they were raised and the way they see God and the way they envision Hashem and the like and the relationship, everybody would be unique. It would be very, very special. But then there is something else. On Rosh Hashanah, we all gathered in shul, and we all cried out to God. And everybody had their machzer, and everybody said their own things. When it came to Zechreinu L'chaim, in your minds and in your thoughts, everybody formulated their thoughts, their thinking, their connection to God in a unique way. But there was one thing that was equal across the entire Jewish world. And those were those sounds. Do, 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 do. I mean, obviously the, the one that's blowing is blowing a little differently in every place. But the sound is the same sound. So the Baal Shem Tov says an interesting story to explain the sound of the shofar. And we all, it's a famous story of the Baal Shem Tov, where the Baal Shem Tov says that a father, a king, once sent his child, his one and only child away to a faraway land to learn certain culture, to learn, to, to study, to learn, to gain knowledge. The child wanders and goes off to this faraway land, but he needed... Uh, um, you know, he was looking first thing, he wanted to make sure that he's comfortable so he took the money that his father gave him and he squandered it mainly on, to be, on taking care of himself, then he didn't have any money so if he didn't have any money, he ended up in trouble so he had to get, get to go work and then we got in work, he got involved with other kinds of people and in the end he didn't get to learn any of the cultures that he was supposed to learn, any of the knowledge that he was supposed to learn, instead he started you know, losing who he was and what he was as a prince and then finally, after many, many years of wandering and suffering and going through who knows what, and losing all of his royalty of whatever he was, he decides it's time to go back home. He misses his father, wants to go back home. But by now, he already forgot the language. And he finally makes his way back to the palace of the king, or to the capital, and he tries to, to and he's dressed, he's dressed in rags. He doesn't look like at all like he's from the royal family. And he's telling people that he's the prince, or trying to tell them something, they laugh at him, they're throwing things at him, he's a joke. And he comes close to the palace, but then he realizes the only thing left is when the king passes by, he will just cry out with a simple voice. There's no words. 
There's no intelligence. There's no sophisticated words. It's just a simple cry. That simple cry, the Baal Shem Tov says, is the sound of the shofar blowing. It's the sound of essence calling to essence. It's the sound of the purest, the purest inner divine spark that got stuck and got, 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 got all the stuff that just, the grime and, and all this of life, you know, the, 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 stuck onto the soul and it's kind of, and now the Nisham is just crying, whimpering from beneath all of that. Oh, we understand that that cry of the soul, which is purely divine, which has nothing to do with our consciousness, our interpretation of how we understand. It's just the pure weeping of a soul that every Jew does equally. Because that point, every Jew is a, is a spark. And it's nothing to do, even the greatest tzaddik, if they're experiencing a Rosh Hashanah experience, it's not coming from their sophisticated knowledge. Or else they should speak. We should say like this, tzaddikim who know how to talk who know how to say poetry, should speak to God and say their poetry to Hashem and Rosh Hashanah. And ordinary simple people should, who, who, or people who forgot the language should blow with a horn. But we don't do that. The biggest tzaddik, he can be the biggest tzaddik, the biggest rebbe, also cries out with the simple cry of a sound of an animal horn. Because what we're really expressing is the simple primitive cry coming from the essence of the soul and that's just equal by every single Jew. So what do you see from here? That Rosh Hashanah and the Sukkah is the exact same thing. Because Rosh Hashanah, we're giving that simple sound, and that simple sound, everybody is equal. And then in the Sukkah, everybody is sitting in one Sukkah. And there's no distinction, distinction why? Because Sukkah is kind of the response that God responds to the simple sound of the shofar, like we spoke earlier in the beginning of the class. The schach of the Sukkah comes from the hundred sounds of the shofar. So when a wimp, when a soul, when a pure divine spark cries out to God, God shines His light and His love down to the neshama. In that there is no difference because God is loving us because we're His, because we're His child. In that there is no difference between one Jew and another Jew. So the Sukkah, thank you. So the Sukkah, and the, and the shofar expressed the same idea of unity. That intrinsic oneness at the core of every Jew. What, but the Dalad Minim, the four species that kind of bring us all together, even when we are different. And it's highlighting the differences of one from each other. And yet, not only tolerating the differences that there is, but actually saying that because you're different, because of who you are that's very different than me, that's why I need you. That's why we want you. That's why you're, you're the guy we need precisely because you're different. You're the woman we need precisely because, we're different, because you're different, because of uniquity. Because only you can contribute to the Jewish people something that only you can give. Oh, that's something we don't find in Rosh Hashanah. So you see that the lulav is something new. But now, let's see, how is that really connected to the sukkah? Because we said earlier, the lulav needs to be shook. Where do we shake the lulav? Preferably, we should shake the lulav in the sukkah. Because what we really are, are, have now developed is that there's two types of unity. One is unity of essence, in which I dismiss all the differences and I look at the core, core essence, where we're all the same, deeper than our differences, and one includes our differences. But remember we said earlier that each one has a quality. The oneness is stronger at our essence, but... But the, but the unity of, 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 that, that, of the Dalad Minim 
is a unity that, that, that could, could connect us as we are. We spoke earlier. As we are, with all of our complexity and with all of our differences. But it's not so strong, the unity, because I still feel that you're different than me. Is there any way, as we mentioned earlier, that the unity of the essence can descend into the expression of, can descend into the differences in a manner where that intense, powerful oneness is not compromised as we look at ourselves and see ourselves as who we are as physical bodies in this world and yet be able to feel totally one and attached to each other with the same intensity as if we close our eyes and I'm looking at you in your soul. Can we connect those two? So to understand this, there is a way to connect them. And in truth, they're deeply connected. And we will understand this by realizing that the un- these two levels of unity in the Jewish people are really derived from the unity of God. Why are the Jewish people united? The Jewish people are united because we stem from one God. When we, say, when we speak about God's unity, in God's unity there's also two levels of unity. There is the unity of God where God is the exclusive being to the exclusion of all everything else. And in that sense, we say that nothing else exists. We strip away everything and say it all is false. The only existence is God. There's another kind of a unity where it's not the exclusion of everything, but the inclusion of everything into the oneness of God. And, the, and, and that is to be understood from two expressions of unity of Hashem. One of them is called Yachid, and the other one is called Echad. When we say the Shema Yisroh, when, expl- when we express God's unity, we say Shema Yisroh Hashem Elokeinu. Hear, O Israel, God is one. Hashem Echad, God is one, right? Heroes of God, Hashem Elokeinu, God is our God. Hashem Echad, God is one. We use the word Echad, which many of the uh, uh, great Jewish philosophers and thinkers question this usage of the word. Why do we use the term Echad? Echad means one, but it's not the strongest expression of oneness that we technically could have used. We're trying to say that we have only one God! One, one! If and God is like the... So then we, the, the, the real better word that should have been used is the word Yachid. Yachid means the only one. Echad means one. And when I count, I say Echad. Shnayim, Shtayim, two. We say one, two, three. So one doesn't, doesn't exclude another one. And but what are, we, what are we trying to emphasize? We're trying to emphasize, and this is obviously a very, very important verse. This is the verse of all of Judaism hinged on this verse. Shouldn't we have chosen the most appropriate word, which is the word Yachid? Shema Yisrael Hashem Lakeinu Hashem Yachid. And the answer to that is a very deep answer, but we're just going to do it very briefly. Baruch It's as follows. There are two ways of appreciating how God's unity and that the fact that there is a multiple creation and there is a world with billions of creatures in this world that it doesn't, it doesn't challenge and it doesn't negate God's unity. One way of understanding Hashem's unity because we know that God is the only one. Especially in Hasidic, in Hasidic teachings the unity of God is to, is to be understood not that God is the only creator but that God is the only existence. So that's a very deep idea. God is the only existence. But that itself, to understand God as being the only existence, could be understood in two, in two ways. 
One way of understanding God as the only existence is to negate all other existence and to say everything else seems to exist, but it's not real. It looks to us, because we're living in this tiny little construct called creation, so to us this world looks like this super big mega entity. If we really, really, really were to appreciate and to see things the way they are, the world would not even come up on the radar as the tiniest, tiniest little dot. What do I mean by that? The Kabbalist, Kabbalists and Hasidic masters teach us that all of all the spiritual worlds, all, all worlds, all of the, we're not just talking about the physical universe that's ginormous, that doesn't end, right? The physical universe. But higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, the endless spiritual worlds that there are, they look to be something in our eyes. God created them from a crumb of 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 a crumb. I'm going to say, every time I'm using a crumb, it becomes a crumb of a crumb. To the point that you, you dilute that crumb down a gazillion times, it's a crumb of what? It's a crumb of his energy that, that for all practical purposes is non-existent. So if we were to really see God, if you were to really see God, imagine if though every, everything would peel, suddenly we would get to see God, creation would disappear. Literally doesn't exist. It's not there. And God is the only one. No one would give this creation that's not even a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck any credence to be called in existence. It's nothing. Just because it's infinitesimally garnished begarnished. It's nothing. So the worlds don't exist. <laughs> Especially the physical universe. That's already diluting the creation another gazillion. It doesn't exist. It's just not there. It's just that because we don't see God and we're living within the creation it looks like something. That's the meaning of yachid. And that's true. That's the truth is that it's possibly, we said on Rosh Hashanah, we said, Atta Zohar, God, you remember the creation? In Hasidus it says, why do we have to say that God, you remember the creation? Of course God remembers. The answer is the creation is so nothing and all the world is, it's possible to forget. It's possible that you just, want, just would not remember it. I mean, we know God, because God can't forget. But in, because of the insignificance of this little crumb, it's possible that it would be forgotten. So we're imploring by God, don't forget it. Don't forget, don't forget. So the worlds are literally nothing. And that's the meaning of yachid. And that's perfect. That's a perfectly true understanding that, the fa- that God is not, God's exclusivity is not challenged by the creation of the billion gazillions creatures and they, all that, because they're all part of a universe that's all nothing. But then there's another, another word. The word is echad. What does echad mean? Echad means I am not dismissing the creation and sweeping it off to the corner, to the very, very corner, 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 till you don't see it anymore. That's not what I'm doing. What I, and I'm only seeing God. No. What I'm doing is like this. I'm, I'm purposely opening my eyes up to look at the creation. What does the word echad mean? Echad is comprised of aleph, ches, and Dalit. Ches is eight, Dalit is four. So Ches, the Gemara says, and it's Shulchan Aruch is brought, when we say Echad, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to make God king on the earth and on the seven heavens, that's the Ches, and the Dalit, the four directions, basically in all of space. We're supposed to proclaim God's, God's unity in all of space. So what does that mean? That means I am recognizing that there is an up and there is a down. 
I'm looking at the four directions of the, of the world. I'm seeing an, and everything that's included in it. I'm looking at all the galaxies. I'm looking at all the stars. I'm looking at all the creatures that there are in this physical world down here on earth. I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at all the billions of people that there are and all the endless gazillions of, 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 of insects that there are and plants and fish and birds and everything that's there. And what am I saying? I, I, I purposely notice them. But I'm saying one thing. That God, you are the truth of the tree. You are the truth of the snowflake. You are the truth of the fire. And without your energy continuously pulsating in the fire and in the snowflakes and in the trees and in the ocean and in the birds and in the clouds and in the blue sky and in the angels and in, and in everything that's around me. And if without you continuously invig- giving it existence, it couldn't exist. So who is the existence of the ches and of the da'wah? That's you, Hashem. So now let's imagine two people. I want you to imagine two people. One of them, God throws him a pair of glasses. Imagine this. Both of them are coming into shul and they're both coming to David. And to one of them, Hashem throws him a pair of glasses. In the middle of David, you imagine this big, nice, beautiful, big pair of glasses come flying down. Flies into this person. He puts on the glasses and suddenly, basically, God gave him his eyes. That's what happened with these glasses. God gave him his lenses. And suddenly, obviously you see a person turtles pale like whatever, this person is now seeing the infinite existence of God. He sees beyond, he sees God. This person has a yachid moment. He himself doesn't exist. The world, he's not even conscious of the fact that he's seeing anything because he's literally, it's only Hashem at this moment. Only God. And all of creation, he sees it shrinking. Let's let's watch, the glasses hits him slowly. Till it shrinks, 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 it becomes a tiny, till he can't even see it anymore, till even that little dot, and there's nothing there, and all it is pervaded by the infinite light. Only Hashem. And he cries with all of his being, Yachid, you are, number Hashem. That's one person. The other person is not putting on God's glasses, but he's putting on Torah glasses, our glasses, and has, and has trained his mind and his heart to see everything as to see the godly energy that's pulsating in every creature and every being. Which means, uh, there is a tree and I'm not looking. It's not like the world is shrinking into, into and dissolving out of existence. I notice very much a creation. The world is very much a something. But, that, but it's not a something. Because I realize like this, that the whiteness of the snowflake is a reflection. What's the true definition of that whiteness? It's God's kindness. Snow is water, which is God's kindness. That's why it's white. White is kindness. The fluffiness of the snowflake, the softness of the snowflake, is God's kindness. Because when someone is kind, it's soft. And then the uniqueness of this flow, snowflake, because you ever, you, ever you ever go look up on Google, look up snowflakes. It's the most fascinating thing. You're gonna, if you want to stand in awe of God's unbelievable artistic work, go, I'm telling you, you've got to do this. I once... Go home and look up Google snowflakes and you'll see that every single snowflake is, is an exquisite piece of art. There's no two snowflakes. And each one, they, it's unbelievable. It's like, it looks like a craftsman. But each one, it's not just its piece of God's art. Each one is reflecting other nuances of God's infinite kind of kindness. That's why each one is different in shape. So now I realize 
that the whiteness of the snowflake, the softness of the snowflake, the coldness of the snowflake, and the shape of the snowflakes are all different nuances in God's attributes of kindness. And that's the snowflakes. And, and without God, there's nothing to it. Oh, so then I'm no, and, and then when I'm looking at fire, I realize, ooh, this is God's gavura. And that's the fire, and that's the soul of the fire, and that's the redness of the fire, and that's the fire leaping upward. That's another aspect of the divine characteristics, and that's fire. And I notice in all creatures the colorfulness of an infinite God that can express himself in these various multiple different forms and shapes, and everything is nothing, uh, is, is, is all him finding expression through all of his creations. And without, uh, and without that power flowing into all, this, all these creatures and all beings, nothing can exist. So, and this person is also saying, what is he saying? He's not saying Yachid, this person wearing his glasses. Imagine if the Kabbalistic meaning of every... Okay, let's change the story a little. God does throw him a pair of glasses. But God is throwing him the glasses of Echad, not the glasses of Yachid. He puts on these glasses and literally every single creature that you see, that he sees, is a combination of divine attributes. That's what he's seeing. So when I'm seeing the greenness of the, of the leaves, I'm seeing something about, the, about... I'm seeing Kabbalistic formulations in everything. Oh, that's God too. Who is seeing strong... Who is experiencing oneness stronger? A stronger oneness, a stronger sense that there's nothing but God. The first guy is experiencing stronger, absolute oneness. The second person, however, the problem with the first guy is... His world shrunk, 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 shrunk till it disappeared. And he's screaming, young kid. If you'll tap him on the shoulder, and suddenly you'll pull the world back up. You know, today's days you can do everything on, I love it on the phone, that you can take the tiniest thing and you can just move your fingers like this on the screen and suddenly this small little thing opens up and becomes huge, right? So imagine this little non-existent creation. You start going like this to it. And you start opening it, opening it, opening it. And suddenly, now this person is confused. He just said, Yahid, there's nothing but God. And suddenly there's a world. That world that became, that was so miniature and so insignificant to the point that it didn't exist. But now when I'm faced by it, I have a problem. And I have never learned to understand that that very creation with all the billions of galaxies and planet and, and everything that's in it, till the tiniest minute, how that too is God. I've, he's never been taught that secret. This person never had a conversation with the Balshemtov. The Balshemtov never taught him that the unity of God doesn't have to exclude the world. The unity of God expresses itself through the world. These two different things. One excludes the creation and one expresses itself within the creation. So the quality of the person who's seeing Echad is that the world doesn't disturb him. And all the things we see, because in everything you can appreciate God is in that too. The person, however, who has the yachid has a quality because he's seen the power of Hashem being one. Besides him, nothing exists in a stronger way. He's wearing God's glasses and sees that unity. So both of them have a quality. Question is, can we bridge, can we, can we bridge these two levels of unity and unify them together? And the answer is, an idea, just a very, very special idea, just to complete the class and to connect it back to Sukkot. That we could do that because, you see, if someone's echad appreciation is their own thing that they figured out on their own, like, like Avram Avinu did a research and came to a conclusion that God must be the life force behind everything, creating everything. Then there's a certain cap. 
there's a certain degree of how strong I can see Hashem's oneness by me exploring it and figuring it out on my own through understanding that the soul of every creature and every being is Hashem, that I can never reach the pristine, sharp oneness of the person that has been given this prophecy from above to see how nothing exists besides Hashem. But if... The reason I'm exploring, in other words, if I know like this, I know the truth of Hashem Yachid, why? Because in my neshama, the truth of Yachid is shining because God, again, every Jew has a point in his neshama where we, set, where we know the Yachid, we know the truth. That's the inner deepest point of our neshama where a Jew, where, where as a Jew, we have a soul that knows the truth of God to the exclusion of everything else. So we know God is, and therefore in a moment when the world is in conflict with God, a person can give his life up, Al-Kiddush Hashem, because there's nothing, nothing that can compete with that powerful truth that we know in our heart of hearts. You know where we were on that place? Just two nights ago, right in this room, wherever you were on, on Yom Kippur, when you cried, Shema Yisrael Hashem Lakeinu Hashem Echad, you came into contact with that powerful Yachid, even though you said Echad, but you came into contact with that powerful place that God is, and besides Him nothing exists. Then, yeah, we all have an hour neshama. But then God says, okay, I know you have faith in me. I know deep inside your neshama and the part of you that's divine, you know me as I am. But I want you to also see my unity from your perspective. I want you to also recognize that I am true and real also from your mind. So step away from your faith. Explore it with your intellect. Research, look at the creation. Study how... The idea that something couldn't create itself. Look deeper into the creation and search and search. Investigate and research and research. And guess what you're going to do after much, much research? Where are you going to arrive? You're going to arrive to a conclusion that God is everything. And God is in every tree. And God is in every atom. And God is in everything. And the reason... So here's here's an interesting idea. If the reason what's, what's prompting me to do my research and to search for the echad over the yachid is the fact that the, ech, the yachid commanded me to do so. The yachid is telling me that if I'm true, if I'm absolute true, and there's nothing besides me, it must express itself in the multiplicity of a creation. That even in this multicolored creation, you must, if my unity has to show itself eventually, it must come out. So if I'm, if I'm coming from that place and I'm, and I'm going to explore the unity of God because the Yachid is commanding me to do so, then I'm able to connect and, and appreciate the Yachid with the power of the Yachid inside of it. In other words, I can, I'm not losing that Yachid. I'm not using that oneness that's deep, deep inside my neshama when I'm recognizing it also from within the world. I'm still connected to that pristine, powerful oneness because one is derived from the other. In other words, we can say something like this, that the truest MS of Hashem's absolute unity, why did God go and create a world which challenges his oneness, which can, which can create an illusion as if there is so many other than God. The only reason it was created to begin with is so that a deeper truth, a, a, that, that a, a, a stronger element of his oneness should reveal itself. That what? That even if you're going to give me any type of, 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 of reality, any type of existence, which at on the surface level, looks like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a negation of God's oneness, 
Guess what? His truth is, he's not threatened by anything. You see, that's the idea. God's oneness is not threatened by anything. Create me any type of scenario that looks to be completely negating God's oneness, and guess what? Eventually, his oneness will shine forth from that as well. So then the echad is directly, it's coming to serve the yachid. It's not its own thing. We apply that concept, and we apply the same thing to Jewish unity. See, we the Jewish people are essentially one soul, as we spoke earlier. We have this yachid, we have this oneness. We are one soul, indivisible soul. If so, if we're one soul, and we're one indivisible soul, what are we doing in bodies? Why are we so different from each other? Why do we all come down and each of us has gone through a whole different process and we become so different? We have different opinions about everything. We have different ideas about everything. We have different minhagim. Every Jew practices his Judaism in a different way, sees other things as important, has a whole different philosophy and a different approach. Why are we so different if we're, if, 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 if we're really one? The answer is, God made us so different to express our oneness even deeper. To show us, go ahead. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you, the Jewish people. I'm gonna create you with such minds. With Jewish people, are not like, uh, like whoever. I'm not gonna. That that by nature, are, are, their, their nature is to like be uniform. Our nature, God gave us the most conflict, conflict prone nature possible. The Jewish people have. We when when you put two Jews in the room, as we say, then you'll have ten opinions. Like the fact that we are the Abish that created us with that. With that, with the nature of being individual, of of, of not being, like Ben Gurion said to uh, to whoever it was, he said that you know I am a prime minister over 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 over, over, over fifty thousand prime ministers. Everybody's a prime minister. Everybody's got ideas. Everybody's a, God said go go figure it out on your own. And guess what? Thousands of years later, the Jewish people have been prat. We have every for every type of mitzvah we have a thousand men hug him of how it's done in this community, how it's done in that community, and yet, and yet we're all Jewish. We're all, we're all circus is coming, we're all going to be in a sukkah, we're all, we're all doing the same thing, even though we're all doing it so differently, because we're all one. We're so different that we're all one, so the oneness will express itself, dafka, because of our unity, and that's why the one of our individuality is coming to reveal how we are really intrinsically one eshama, one essence. How is that revealed practically? That we shouldn't, compromise on the essence oneness when we experience the oneness of inc- inclusiveness. And, and you know how? When we shake the lulav in the sukkah. The sukkah represents the intrinsic oneness of the Jewish essence. The lulav represents the what? The oneness that has to do with what? With our individual nature and so how we all complement each other. But when we shake the lulav in the sukkah, then we're deriving the unity of our, of our interdependency one to each other. And that too is derived and coming from our quintessential oneness. Then we don't lose that essential oneness when we are experiencing our differences and our unity as a cohesive people interdependent uh, on one another. So in other words, it would be something like this. I told the story years ago in one of the classes. But just to conclude, this was really is that the, the, it was a, a tzaddik who lived in Yerushalayim. And his name was Rabbi Arya Levine. He was a very great man. So he once came to the doctor with his wife. And when he came in, he told the doctor, he told, he told the doctor, he said, her foot is hurting us. And that's the whole share that I said tonight. It's her foot, but it's hurting us. 
he's married to her. They're one. It's her foot, and he knows it's her, it's not his foot. It's her foot hurting us. We, the Jewish people, all of us, it's your foot, it's your thing, it's your problem, your thing, but it's, but it's mine. Because me and you are totally one. And the very differences that make you, you, different than me, that's because to show how me and you really are one neshama and one essence. That's our unity that comes out of sukkahs. And that's expressed in the sea. Every halach of Torah is so deep. That better to shake the lulav in the sukkah. So it's not two separate ideas of unity. There is a unity of essence. And then we can kind of figure out, now that we exist already and we're different, let's figure out how we can all kind of be part of the program. It doesn't work that way. We were a chathila created different so that we can all complement each other because at our very, very core, we are one neshama, we are one nekuda, we are one pun. Just like God's yachid truth ultimately finds expression in the echad truth. Where there are seven heavens, there is a multiple creation, and yet God's oneness reveals itself in, in and because of all this multiplicity. May we merit already that this essential oneness of the Jewish people, and the oneness of Hashem, and the oneness of the Torah will fully be realized in an open way with the coming of Mashiach. May it happen now.